Um, would you turn in your Bible, if you have one with you this morning, to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 is where we're going to be. You've just been singing about um, the heart of Jesus for you, and you're going to be so strongly reminded of that this morning. God's heart is toward you, and I don't know if you've heard that before. Maybe you're new to church, and this is a first experience for you. You need to know, and you're going to see it very clearly this morning, God has a heart for you, and it comes out so powerfully, not only in the music that we just sang, but especially in this passage. It's absolutely ironic that just after Jesus admonishes the Pharisees, as we saw last week, he admonished them for playing games with God. They were rejecting Jesus' message. They were rejecting John the Baptist's message. How ironic that you find in Luke chapter 7 that now a Pharisee immediately after that invites Jesus to dinner. And he's going to have him come sit in his own house. Now, mind you, Jesus has been accused of hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. That's what they've accused him of. They've called him a party boy. You hang out with tax collectors, you hang out with sinners, you're too much of a partier. And now it's going to actually happen right before their own eyes in the home of a Pharisee. Now, Jesus has received a lot of criticism. Up to this point, as you've been watching in the parables, this one's no exception. He's getting criticized constantly from the leadership of Israel. But mind you, because of his heart, that doesn't preclude his interest for them. His concern is even for the leadership of Israel, not just for the sinners, not just for the tax collectors, not just for the party crowd. His concern is for those individuals as well. And I ask myself this question this week as I'm working through this passage. You should be asking yourself the same question. I wonder if my heart would be as gracious towards people who are critical of me as Jesus is towards people who are critical of him. He actually accepts the invitation. He's going to show up at the home of the Pharisee. Luke chapter 7, it starts in verse 36. Maybe you have a Bible or you have an electronically or you can follow along on the screen. Here we go into the story. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So there's no reluctance to accept the invitation whatsoever that I can see here. That he's very interested in the outcasts, that he's very interested in those who are down and out, doesn't mean that he's uninterested in the successful members of society as well. He's interested in everybody. So he's at dinner, which means he's positioned at a really low table. He's laying literally out in a reclined position and probably his head propped up on his arm. You see this particular word that's in your notes, you see on the screen, cataclino. It's the only Greek word this morning that I chose to use. And it means to literally recline down or take a place at the table. It's remarkable though, the way that this is used in, in its context. Not only Jesus in the reclining position, but that means his head is at the table. His feet are pointing away from the table on something like a low sofa. Think like lazy boy, completely in the recline position, only about six inches off the ground. That's where you find Jesus with his head at the table. That's what cataclino means. Now, the reason I chose to use that word this morning is because of the way they used it. When you use this cataclino, 
It was either at Shabbat dinner, which was dinner after synagogue, or a special festival. It wasn't used for every single meal. It was used on these special occasions, very special dinner parties when you invited a lot of guests over, and these couches were brought out to recline on. So mark this, it was quite common for a rabbi or a prophet or a teacher to be invited over after what we would call church, after synagogue, to have dinner at homes of people from the community. And that's what you find them doing with Jesus. Verse 37. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Now, you might be thinking right away, how does this woman have access to Jesus? Well, the doors are not locked. It's, it's an open forum there. And commonly in this particular setting, when a rabbi was invited to someone's house in the community, other people, even if they weren't the invited guests, they could stop by. They could linger around and, and listen to the conversation. So um, non, <clears throat> non-invited guests would hover around in the courtyard watching the who's who arrive. We think of maybe like a red carpet event where limousines pull up. Well, kind of like that, but Jesus walks through the courtyard, makes his way into the banquet hall, and people are hovering around in the courtyard watching him, and some would probably hope to be able to ask him questions because they overhear conversations. And since everything was open, it was common for people to enter into the banquet area and begin speaking with the guests. So verse 37, part A, it says, the woman who's there is from the city. People know her, and she's got a reputation. She's a sinner, we're told here, by Luke. Uh, In that day, women, this will cause you to cringe, but women were not invited into social events that were geared for men. This was an exclusive territory of a man-only banquet. Now, the lady of the house, she might make an appearance if, if for nothing else just to be social and, and greet everyone and welcome them, but would quickly disappear. But otherwise, the only women who were seen in an event like this were either in the courtyard waiting to see the guest arrive or they were servants, typically they were waiting to bring the meal out. Now, here's another layer to that. Rabbis would never speak to women in public, nor did they eat together. They would never sit down to a meal together. <clears throat> so a woman with this background is not going to be welcome in the house of a Pharisee. Now, her sins are not named, but we get this really clear impression. she got a bad reputation. Now, Mind you, if you've studied this passage before, the description here doesn't mean that she's the wife of a tax collector. Some people have speculated about that. Or perhaps she's the wife of a a camel herder. Or perhaps she's the, the wife of some other individual that's an outcast in society. This is dealing specifically with her. It's dealing with her sins. And that's an important detail as you get into this issue. She's not just ceremonially unclean. She's been behaving in some ways that have caused her to be outcast by society. Tradition tells us this is a woman of the street. She's likely a prostitute. Or she's been caught in multiple adulterous relationships. Because Jesus goes on to say a little later in the story, her sins are many. In other words, they're megas. There's a lot. So mark this. She's got a past. 
This woman has history, but she gives evidence that she's repentant about this history. So in verse 37, she learns that Jesus is in the Pharisee's house. Now, that she's hanging around the outside of the Pharisee's courtyard, that's not impossible. But for this particular detail we just talked about, this, it's not that she's unwelcome just because she's uninvited. It's not that she's unwelcome because this is a male-dominated environment. It's not that this is just against social norms. It's her past. Her history is well-known And mark this, normally she wouldn't want to be there. Why would you want to go into an environment where you're going to be ridiculed? So normally she wouldn't want to be there except for this. Jesus is there. Don't you love that detail? I love that. Jesus is there. She heard that Jesus is in that house. So she discovers he's in there and she comes carrying this flask of perfume. Go forward with me in the story, verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. I'm guessing, I know I'm speculating here, but I'm guessing that she doesn't typically carry a bottle of perfume around with her. I'm thinking that's not in her side pocket, it's not in her purse, it's not in her cloak. So that means she had to go home and get this. See, an alabaster vase of perfume is very, very expensive. Not just the alabaster itself, the the flask for keeping it in. That in itself was expensive, but the contents, the perfume, very expensive. So you've got this long neck bottle of alabaster. You've got the contents within this. All of this taken together means she had to go back home. She hears Jesus is there, and wherever she lives in the city, wherever that is, she has to go back home, get this precious item, and come back with the perfume, which means this was really thought out. Her giving is about to be very intentional. Not just spontaneous, but intentional, thought out. She could have changed her mind, and Jesus is reclining at the table, and she comes up behind him. And her tears are absolutely uncontrollable. She begins to approach him. They just begin dropping from her face. Now, it'd be natural to stand behind Jesus because his head is at the table. And his feet are pointing out. But he's in this reclining position. So you can assume as you read the story that she probably meant to anoint his head because that's what you did with the perfume. You put it on a person's hair. You didn't put it on their feet But she's undone by her emotions. She's completely overwhelmed here. And when she begins spontaneously weeping, naturally her tears just fall on Jesus' feet, just like raindrops dropping from the sky. And suddenly Jesus' feet are wet. And in that moment, church, she lets go of all social barriers. All the boundaries are gone. She takes down her hair, which was an absolute social no-no in that day. For a woman to let her hair be seen, to, one, to come out from under the veil, let alone to let her hair down, well, that was grounds for divorce in the first century because that was showing that the woman was saying to other men, come hither, come to me. 
This woman lets all the boundaries go. She drops her hair down and she begins wiping his feet with her hair and then begins kissing his feet. And after wiping his feet and kissing his feet, she pours out this perfume. In the Greek text, when it talks about kissing his feet, understand this is a non-romantic gesture. This is reserved respect for someone of very, very high caliber. It was done for someone in as a sign of deep reverence, especially it was done for people who were teachers as an expression of gratitude. So if you want to kiss my feet after the service, that's cool. I'm joking. Just assuming somebody's not new here this morning. Mind my humor, you'll see. There's the utmost respect going on here. This is what you're watching. But there's deep, deep reverence and uncontrollable emotion. Now, it was a sign of great respect to pour perfume out over someone's head. Typically, it was just done with oil. It wasn't perfume. It was just an oil anointing. But perfume, that's even more uncommon. And then to pour perfume out on someone's feet... This is, mind you, a large financial outlay for her. So stop and think about her background. How does she happen to own something so expensive as an outlay of perfume in an alabaster vask? What's her reputation? How has she earned this? Are we looking at someone who's pouring out the very thing that remains of her former life? How did she buy that? She's pouring it right onto the feet of the one who accepts her and is about to forgive her past. Uh, In a busy banquet area with this festival going on, whatever is happening here, whether it's a Shabbat dinner or is a festival of some event, people have been invited in and with multiple guests there, it's likely she's at first gone unnoticed till the perfume's poured out. That really strong scent of perfume filling the air. If she hoped to be unnoticed, this calls attention to her. And how are people gonna react? Well, you don't have to wait long to see. Go with me to the next verse, verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. She had to have a big enough reputation for even the Pharisee to know this. This isn't just Luke writing about this. The Pharisee identifies her, this woman from the city, and he's repulsed. The mere presence of her in his home. And Jesus has not just let her come in, he's let her that close that she can touch him? You can imagine the Pharisee's horror, the reaction at this. His highly honored guest has just allowed a sinful woman to touch him. Simon's embarrassed for himself and for his guest. People said Jesus is a great prophet. How could this possibly be? He obviously doesn't have discernment. 
Does he not know who she is? As the Pharisee molds this issue over in his mind, he comes to an assumption. He assumes that Jesus is not legit. See, to be touched by a sinner was to make yourself ceremonially unclean. How can he be that great if he's letting this person touch him? The Greek language expresses this as what's called an unreal clause or an unreal condition. In other words, as he's asking these questions in his mind, mind you, he's not saying it outside verbally, he's saying it internally. As he's asking these questions, he's, he's coming to this assumption in a negative form like this. A true prophet would not allow himself to be touched by an unclean woman. So true to form, Jesus knows what he's thinking. He knows what's going on in his mind, and so he goes one better. Because Jesus alone has unique insight into our hearts. See, he not only knows the woman's past, he knows exactly what the Pharisee's thinking. And he sees his heart as well. Go to the next verse. Verse 40, and Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied it, say it, teacher. And here comes the parable. Verse 41, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? I don't know, in this moment, perhaps if Simon is expecting some degree of praise for being the host, if he thinks Jesus is going to go public and say something about how great Simon is, or if he's thinking maybe there's going to be some word of wisdom that's going to come from Jesus. So he says, say it, teacher. And he doesn't know that he's being set up. And so here comes the parable. And the parable starts with a moneylender had two debtors. And one owes 500 and one owes 50. What do they owe? 500 denarii. 50 denarii, what's a denarii? A denarii is a single Roman coin which represented one day's wage for an agricultural worker. For an agricultural worker to work an entire day, they would get one denarii at the end of the day. So for one individual, we're looking at a year and a half worth of wages, 500. For the other one, we're looking at a couple months of wages, 50 denarii. I don't know what you earn in a day, in a month, in a year, a year and a half, but this is a significant amount of money. And they don't have the money to pay back the debt. Neither debtor is able to repay. What's really unexpected is that the lender is going to show grace. And he removes the debt from both of their records. When is the last time you ever heard of a debt collector doing that. That's not what money lenders do. Money lenders don't forgive debt. They don't remove debts without debt being paid. So this is a remarkable debt collector. Uh, each individual instantly goes from hopeless bankruptcy to this clean slate. They got a new beginning in life, a completely new start. And this is a really important detail to understand this parable in the Bible. Sin is frequently compared with debt. 
debt as compared with sin. The two are interchangeable. So there's a parallel, and we've talked about how the parables are always a parallel of a spiritual reality being laid alongside a physical reality. Jesus uses this image of debt for a very specific purpose. Because every one of us in this auditorium this morning, we're all debtors to God, amen? You don't say that one so enthusiastically, but it's true. You need to know that, especially if you're new to church. Every one of us is a debtor to God. There is not one of us who has not violated God's standards. God actually says, if you think you don't have sin, you're a liar, He says that multiple times in scripture. Worse yet, none of us can actually discharge the debt. So if you're gonna use sin or debt as a comparable, a parallel to lay alongside each other, none of us has the capacity to discharge that debt or get rid of our own sin. So how do we deal with it then? What do we do with the debt? What do we do with the sin if all we do is daily increase the debt level? What popped in my mind when I was thinking of that was that national debt clock. Have you ever seen that in New York City? It's in Manhattan. How fast the numbers change on that. I think it's downtown Manhattan and the national debt clock, I believe it shows like $22 trillion right now. Well, that makes our minds spin and it boggles the thought. Imagine your sin being on that debt clock. And every day it compounds and it keeps spinning faster and faster. And you can't discharge it. What do you do? If, mind you, if we could from this day forward obey all of God's laws perfectly and never fail in one single form whatsoever, would that obedience compensate for all the past sin that you have? No. It might take care of sin moving forward, but it wouldn't take care of everything you've done in the past. So we can't do that no no more than ceasing to spend money on a credit card would discharge the debt that was built up on the credit card before you stopped spending. So that presents a dilemma. What do you do in that case? Well, that's not the only issue. It's not just the obedience factor. What about repentance? What if I'm really, really sorry? Well, repentance can't obliterate a debt because being sorry doesn't take it away any more than being sorry for an offense committed against a human law would take it away. Imagine if you created a crime and you stand before a judge and you say to the judge, I'm really, really, really sorry. Well, the judge will say, I I know, but there's still a price that has to be paid. So in that moment, you might throw yourself on the mercy of the court and say, well, I'm not only really, really, really sorry, but can I have mercy? It's not just enough to be sorry. So if obedience won't do it and repentance won't do it, if obedience can't cancel your debt and repentance can't cancel your debt, where does that leave you? It leaves you in this place where you're forced to confess, I have nothing with which to pay. I'm bankrupt. See, if you don't have anything to transfer over for the payment, you got nothing, you're bankrupt. But here's good news this morning, New Hope. God will forgive all of your debt. God forgives every single component of it. 
and I want to clarify, not 100%. Catch you by surprise? 110%. And it's 110% because he doesn't just forgive your past. He doesn't just give you, forgive your present. He forgives your future sin, things you haven't even committed yet. But not just 100%, but 110. God goes up and beyond, forgives it all. So no longer bankrupt. Charles Simeon summed this thought up really, really well. I wanted you to see his quote. He said this in 1832. None can be accepted who will not come as bankrupts, nor shall any who come in this manner be rejected. I think I know why he wrote that. He wrote that as a match for 1 John 1.8. Let me put that on the screen for you. Look at what it says. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, we think we're not bankrupt. We think we're not bankrupt. And scripture says the truth's not in you if you think that's the case. But watch 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To which all of New Hope should say really loudly, amen. Because that's power, right? 1 John 1, 8 is pretty hard. 1 John 1, 9, we love. 1 John 1, 9 says there's a buyout here. You can get rid of all of that debt. Now back into the story. A person who thinks their debt is really small feels little love for Jesus. They feel a very small amount of love for their Savior. Now Jesus has very quickly drawn Simon into the parable. And he quickly passes over this unnatural discharging of the debt. He doesn't even spend time on that, on the part of the creditor. He concentrates instead on the response of the people who've been forgiven with a really direct question. He says to Simon, the host, which one of the two will love that creditor more, Simon? Who's going to have more love for them? Verse 42, which one of them will love him more? Uh, Obviously, both of them are going to gain love. Both of them are going to go from hating that one whom they owe the money to, to loving that one. Obviously, both of them are going to gain it. One is forgiven a debt, though, that is 10 times larger than the other. And Jesus asked this really crucial, crucial question. Which one loves him most? Don't mistake this on this particular parable. This parable is not actually dealing with the amount of sin. That's not what it's pushing toward. It's pushing towards the awareness of sin. See, it's not about the amount of sin. It's the awareness. Do you recognize that you have it? Do you recognize that we're all debtors? Jesus' point is it's the awareness of the depravity that makes the person grateful, that it's even there in the first place. And the greater the depravity, the more the awareness. So Simon's real problem is his spiritual blindness. See, it's easy to say, she's a sinner. Why is she in my house? It is much harder to say, I am also a sinner. I'm no different. So new question, how much sin must a person commit to be classified a sinner? One, right? That's the thought that popped in your mind. You're correct. 
You just have to commit one. We're all guilty of that. It's why we all fall short of the glory of God. Simon and the woman are both sinners. The difference is hers are known. Simon's are hidden to everyone except to God. So both of them are bankrupt because both of them cannot pay the debt. Simon is just as spiritually bankrupt as the woman. The difference is he doesn't realize it. Whether it's mentally he doesn't realize it or verbally he doesn't want to express it, we don't know. Watch verse 43. Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. In the original language, the way this is written, his I suppose, it represents a really uneasy reluctance to engage in the conversation. In other words, almost like an indifference. Well, I suppose if you're going to force me to answer. The one who owes him more. See, in Simon's mind, as he's engaging in this, he has no fear whatsoever of any comparison to this woman's immoral life. He's a Pharisee. She's a sinner. There's no fear in his heart that he's not righteous. So Jesus has to raise a new standard of comparison for him. And he applies this really short parable that you just read about. And I'm not quite sure when it happened, but there's a moment when Simon realizes he's been caught in a trap. Go with me to the next verse. Verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon... Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she since the time I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. In in the parable that we're looking at here, The behavior of the two debtors is parallel to the behavior of Simon and the woman toward Jesus. See, the custom was to provide water at least for a guest to your home to wash their feet because most of the roads were not paved. Romans had a few paved roads, but not very many. The majority of them were dirt roads and feet got really dirty and then they get sweaty and then they get the dirt ground into the feet and it became really customary because all they had was sandals to wash their feet at the entrance of the banquet hall before they came in to eat. It wasn't mandatory. It was just a kind gesture to at least have a bucket of water. And if you would go one step further to have the servants sit down and begin washing the feet of the dinner guests. And Jesus said, I didn't get a kiss on my cheek, which was a common form of greeting. It wasn't expected but it was going up and beyond, or you didn't anoint my head with oil. And as I told you earlier, to anoint the head with oil was really saying, I respect this person. I really revere this individual. So they would at least put olive oil on their head. See, Simon's not been rude here. He's been the host. He's provided the dinner. He's invited the guests, but he hasn't done anything in the way of special hospitality. He didn't go out of his way. So Simon hasn't expressed any degree of affection whatsoever toward Jesus. On the other hand, the woman did all three. And she's really strained her resources. 
She's dumped out this powerful perfume that apparently everyone can smell. So who wins the comparison here? Verse 47, for this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Catch this, it could go really quick. Jesus doesn't dispute her condition. He recognizes it's real. She's got a lot of sin on her. And both Jesus and Simon agree, the sin has been great. But Jesus knows that she's more than her worst failure. Do you need to hear that again? Jesus knows that you are more than your worst failure. That's the remarkable thing about Jesus' heart toward us. He knows that every one of us is more than our past. So often we allow our past to define us. That's what Simon's trying to do with this woman. He wants her past to define her. The issue to God is the now. Where's she at now? How acceptable is she now? What's her current status? So he makes it clear for everyone who's watching the event and for everyone who's reading the story this morning. Jesus brings out the same reality for her which he brings out for you. He gives personal assurance that he can deal with sin. It's a foregone conclusion that God alone can forgive sin. Jesus forgives sin. Jesus forgives her sin. Therefore, Jesus can forgive your sin. We're not told when she experienced the forgiveness. We don't know if she sat on the Sermon on the Mount on the side of the hill and listened to Jesus. We don't know if a previous encounter took place. We don't know when it happened. We just know that it happened. Some type of a previous encounter. Now, I want to clarify the part that Jesus said in part B of verse 47 when he says, for she loved much. Don't look for it on the screen. Just look in your own Bible if you have it open. Read those words, for she loved much. I want you to hear this really clearly. If you, you want theology this morning, here's theology for you. Her love is not the basis for her forgiveness. Her love is not the basis for her forgiveness. Scripture says in John, we love him because he first loved us. So her love can't be the basis of her forgiveness. It's better understood in the sense of, and this is the way it's stated in the Greek language, the evidenced by the fact that she loves. In other words, she's giving evidence that she belongs to Jesus. And the evidence, she's pouring out the perfume. Please don't think you can be saved by your love. And a lot of people who have loved really, really well. You can't be saved by any merit of your own whatsoever. Many have loved well but still are not saved. Follow this thinking. God loves the whole world. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. But all the world is not saved. You can love really, really well, but the love doesn't do it. What does then? 
Well, Jesus brings clarity in case we trip over that point. We get this clarity in Ephesians. Look with me on the screen at this. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through what, church? Through, through faith. It's not on the merit of anything that you've done. You could love really, really well and still not be saved. It's the gift of God, not of works. Therefore, she loved much. Why does Jesus say that? He's saying, there's the evidence She's providing the evidence. It's not the cause. She loved me much. So 1 John 4, 19 says what I quoted earlier. Love is the result. We love him because he first loved us. Watch the reaction of the crowd, verse 49. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? The party crowd's going, oh, Whoa, how, what? They can't believe what they've just heard. They've heard rumors that Jesus claims to forgive sins and now they've heard it themselves. How could any mere man forgive sins? That's God's job. Who does he think he is? I'm not even sure why Dr. Luke included that. Because Jesus completely ignores them. Watch. He goes right to her and focuses on the woman. Verse 50. And he said to the woman, see, he's paying no attention to the crowd. He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Don't don't let that slide by. There's the confirmation of what we just said. She's saved through her faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Your faith has saved you. It's not her act of love. It's not the actions. The actions demonstrate what she believes about God. We've said that many times here. What you believe about God determines what you do next. What she believes about Jesus has caused her to pour out this perfume. It's her faith that saved her, though. Now, besides all the details, and you've learned a lot this morning, besides all the facts that you've heard, here's what I want you to carry out the door with you. Especially if you're a believer in Christ, this should affect how you see people this week. This is working on my heart. Simon sees her past. Jesus sees her future. I want that to be true of me. I want that to be true of our church. Not that we would see people's past, that we would see her future, that we would see his future, that we would see their future. What is it in those moments that allows someone to despise the shame and enter a banquet hall and triumph over her fear. She's got a reputation. She's known in the city, perhaps a prostitute, maybe, many, maybe a many times adulteress. We don't know, but the sins are great. And she knows she's walking into a Pharisee's home. What is it that allows you to push past that, to despise the shame You have seen this woman under emotional stress off the charts this morning to the point where she just begins weeping over Jesus' feet and she doesn't care what other people think. And it's very natural in human nature to be thinking in that moment, is he gonna receive me? Is is he gonna let me in? Can I actually come to him? What enables her to approach What's what John writes in John chapter 6, verse 37. Take this verse out the door with you. All that the Father gives me will come to me, 
and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. If that's true of Jesus, shouldn't that, shouldn't that be true of Jesus' followers? We would never cast someone out. This is where Jesus is going with that parable. Because I wonder personally, as I've read this this week, I wonder how long this woman and the Pharisee lived in the same town together. How well they knew each other. And she would never previously have approached his home. She knew he would despise her. She knew he would scorn her. And yet she feels no apprehension whatsoever because Jesus is there. She knows he's in the house. So without reserve and without fear, she comes in. And the confidence that she has is this. He's worth it. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth me shaming myself. He's worth everything that I have to bring forward. If you've ever in your past walked an aisle or raised a hand in a service or gone into a baptism tank, you know that sense of fear. Like everybody's looking at me. Everybody's watching me. What allows you to push past that? Because Jesus is worth it. Amen, New Hope? He's worth it. Her faith is this. Jesus says your faith has saved you. Her faith is this. Jesus is worth it. In exchange for humbling herself, she gets Jesus. And as numerous as her sins are, God's record book has been wiped clean on her account. How great is that? He's done that for you this morning if you're a believer in Jesus also. I just want to pray with you right now with that thought in our mind. We have reason to praise him. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for the power of what you have shown us this morning, how great your heart is toward us. No matter what we've done in our past, no matter how much it weighs us down and keeps us from being what you see us as, God, I, I pray this morning in this moment right now that you would remind every single person in this auditorium who names the name of Christ that our slate has been wiped clean also. May it also be true, Father, of us that as believers that we would walk this world this week looking at other people the exact same way that Jesus would look at them. That we wouldn't be guilty of defining people by their past, but rather by what they can be. And what we can be can only happen because of Jesus. I thank you on behalf of my friends who are gathered here this morning who know him and have been forgiven. Thank you, Father. We have reason to praise you and exalt you and thank you in the matchless name of the king who bought us at great price and wiped out our debt, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.